right. Thank you, Wit, for that word. Well, we are in the third week of a four-week series called How Sweet the Sound, as you see on the screen, and we take that from the song that many of you know called Amazing Grace. It says, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And we are talking about grace, talking about how grace is something that's such an important part of the Christian life. And last week, Tim shared about justifying grace, saving grace, the grace that we receive when we experience salvation. And uh, it, it was a great message that pointed our hearts towards a better understanding of what it means to be saved. And so this week, we're going to talk about what happens, what's our understanding of grace once we experience that initial justification, that initial saving grace. And it's, it's interesting as you think about it, because the Bible talks in you know, a handful of chapters about that experience of being saved, what it takes to be saved, but there are, there's a whole rest of the Bible that talks about our experience of grace in different ways. And so what we're going to look at this morning is kind of a broad view of what it means to experience sanctifying grace. Now, sanctifying grace might be kind of a foreign term for some of you, but we're, we're going to explain it pretty thoroughly this morning. Sanctifying grace is essentially the grace that keeps going with us after that initial justification experience. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few passages, and, and you might have some that come to mind as we're talking about these. But these passages will introduce us to the idea of sanctification. So if you have your message notes, I invite you to turn in those. The scriptures are printed in there. Uh, also, you can follow along on the screens. But here is the first one. This comes to us from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And here, here's the key part for us. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you might be thinking to yourself, huh, how do I continue to work out my salvation? I thought my salvation was taken care of, that it was nailed to the cross, and when I accepted that, I experienced salvation. And so there's this idea that runs throughout the New Testament of continuing to work out your salvation. Ephesians helps explain it a little bit more, and this is kind of our key verse for explaining this idea of sanctification. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's God's gift. It's not something you possess. And the next part says it's not something that you did that you can be proud of. And the final verse says this, instead, we are God's accomplishment created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. And so it's this idea of, yes, we have been saved. There is nothing that we could do to earn that salvation. There's nothing that we could do. Tim talked about this last week extensively. There are not enough works that we could do to move ourselves to that point of experiencing salvation on our own. It is something that God has done in us. 
But there are all these passages in Scripture. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, that sounds easy. Uh, and there are all these passages that talk about works. We're not supposed to work for our salvation, but we are supposed to work as an overflow of our salvation. My grandfather just turned 90 years old last month, and when he was about to turn 80 years old 10 years ago that summer, he took the entire family on a cruise. And as we were on this cruise, the joke became, uh, pretty much as soon as we got on the boat, that my grandfather, who was almost 80 years old, what we were going to do with him was we were going to put him in a wheelchair, we were going to wheel him to the top deck right beside the ice cream machine. And we could go, we could explore the ship, we could go and we could go off on excursions where we went into different ports, and we could experience all these amazing things that the ship had to offer. And if you ever needed to find Granddaddy, you went to the top deck right by the ice cream machine because that's where he was, usually with ice cream in his hand. And if you know my grandfather, he loves ice cream. I mean, it is something that is just a passion of his in life. And so we, we would go, and we would go up and see him, and then it would be mealtime, and we'd say, okay, we need to go, Granddad needs to eat something more than ice cream, and so we would go and find him, wheel him to the dining hall, and then after we were done, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but we would take him back to the upper deck where he would rest by the ice cream machine for the rest of the trip. Now, no one is going to fault my grandfather for not experiencing all the amenities, the, the pool, the weight room, the clubs, the many amazing features that are available on a cruise ship. No one's going to fault him for just wanting to stay put and enjoy the ice cream. No one's going to fault him for not feeling up to getting off the boat every time we stopped in an exotic port. But here is the thing about how many of us approach the Christian life. A lot of us approach, approach the Christian life in kind of the same way. We experience the cruise ship. We experience this idea of God's saving grace for us. And then we, we get up to that top deck and we've like, I have got my ice cream. I'm just good to hang out here. And a lot of us experience that saving grace on the front end of our relationship with Christ, and we never move beyond that point. And so sanctifying grace is what happens if we choose to move beyond that point. What happens if we choose to accept more than just the gift that Christ died for us? That's an awesome part of it. But what happens when we choose to experience that grace Every single day of our lives until we meet our Heavenly Father face to face. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about this idea of what it means to remain in God. What it means to abide in God. And even though it doesn't use that big word sanctification, I believe that this passage points us to what sanctification means is all about. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along. Not all of this is printed in your bulletin, but it will be on the screen. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. He removes any of my branches that don't produce fruit, and he trims any branch that produces fruit so that it will produce even more fruit. 
You are already trimmed because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. Let's read this verse together. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. You're invited to keep reading along if you would like. If you don't remain in me, you'll be like a branch that is thrown out and dries up. Those branches are gathered up, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified when you produce much fruit. And in this way, prove that you are my disciples. And we see that image all throughout the New Testament. 43 times the word fruit shows up. And there's this idea that we as followers of Christ are supposed to produce fruit. And how do we get there? We get there by remaining in God. Remaining in Christ. Some versions might say the word abide. And if you read the passage, if you read the whole chapter, everything that Jesus is talking about is within the context of, of this simple principle. We remain and abide for God and for others. The, the purpose of us abiding is for the experience of experiencing God in our lives and experiencing relationship with others. Everything points towards that. And if you read the New Testament, all of the talk about the fruit, everything points to this idea of God and others. If you read the Old Testament, everything points to God and others. And when John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement, said if he could sum up all of Scripture, it would be summed up in this principle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We know this as the greatest commandment and the golden rule. And it appears in different ways in each of the Gospels. And it's this concept that shows up over and over and over again that we exist for the purpose of having a love relationship with God and a love relationship with each other. And through that, through that experience, we produce good fruit. I remember uh, several years ago, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, there was a good friend of mine, uh, Monica Firth. She came out of this church, and um, her younger sister Stephanie worships with us. And Monica came up to me after a prayer service at a ministry that we were a part of. And, and she came up to me, and she said these words. And I've never forgotten it. Um, it was supposed to be a word of encouragement, but she kind of had this tremble in her voice and so uh, I knew that she was trying to offer it as encouragement, but she didn't really believe that it was encouragement. But what she said was, I feel like the Lord is about to lead you into the desert. And I said, that can't be good news. Uh, that doesn't sound good at all. Uh, thank you for that word of encouragement, Monica. You were very helpful today. But she, she, she said, I feel like you're about to go through a desert experience. And I wanted to resist that. There was no part of me that wanted to go through any desert. But in the same way that God 
is described in this passage this morning as pruning the vines, pruning the branches. We too have to go through that experience. And I realized that the desert for me was not a period of of dryness, which is what I initially thought it was. The desert for me was like it is for a lot of people throughout history. It was a period of searching. It was a period of searching for what is it that I'm supposed to be? What is it that I'm supposed to do? What is it that I exist for? And what I realized as I started going through that searching was that I knew God. I knew what God had done for me. But I had not truly developed a love for God yet. A lot of times we think in terms of, oh, I know Jesus died on the cross for me. But it's one thing to know what someone did for you and be thankful for that. It's quite another thing to move to that step of absolutely loving them. I remember when my wife Emma and I started dating Uh, early on, I was thankful for what she did for me. It was nice to have someone to go do fun things with. It was nice to have someone who laughed at my jokes. Um, that, That was a new concept for me. And it was nice to have this pretty young girl who wanted to spend time with me because all my friends would look around and go, dude, how'd you pull it off? What, what, what's the trick here? And I said, I don't know. Uh, but we, we had this experience of where I was like, I, I know her. I'm getting to know her. Um, and I, I'm thankful for everything that she does for me. I'm thankful for everything that is part of her being a part of my life. But I didn't love her yet. It was the experience of spending time with her day after day and then year after year that caused me to fall in love with her. And a lot of us, we know what God did for us. We're thankful for what God did for us, but we haven't taken the time to know God, to seek God in our everyday life. And so John Wesley, he he realized that this was something that people would struggle with. And So as he talked about the idea of sanctification, he pointed towards this idea called the means of grace. And the means of grace is kind of a term that might not mean much to you, no pun intended. But the means of grace is simply the ways in which God reveals grace to us. And one of those ways is through the expression of Christ dying on the cross for us. But there are ways that we continue in relationship with God, and through those experiences, we grow in our faith, and we grow in our understanding of God, and we grow in our understanding of grace. And we're going to throw these up on the screen. He broke them down into the the concept of personal holiness and social holiness, and we're going to throw up first personal holiness. And these are some of the ways, some of the means of grace that Wesley talked about, these are the ways that God reveals God's self to us as followers. These are the ways that we can experience God. These are essentially, if we were to look at the divine, and we were to say, huh, I would like to know the divine. These are ways that have been ordained by God in which God reveals God's self to us. 
Reading, meditating and studying the scriptures, prayer, fasting, regularly attending worship, healthy living, sharing faith. We're going to talk about sharing faith next week. Regularly sharing in the sacraments and accountability. These are personal holiness ways in which we experience the grace of God. And I have a few of them underlined um, just to share about briefly. Uh, regularly attending worship, I have underlined, because as a pastor, I'm contractually obligated to remind you to regularly attend worship. But prayer, prayer is one of those ways in which we pour out our heart to God. And as if, we, if we stick with it long enough, we start to hear a little bit back. We start to experience how God might be speaking to us. The Bible, reading scriptures. There's a story about a professor at the University of North Carolina by the name of Bart Ehrman. He's a best-selling author, uh, and he has made it his mission to ruin the faith of fundamental Christians that come to the campus of North Carolina. Uh, He's incredibly smart, incredibly influential, and uh, has done a lot of damage in people's lives. But he, he said something one time that I think speaks to us in a convicting way about how we ought to look at the Bible. He was speaking at a conference, and he told this story about how in his introduction class to the Bible, on the first day of class, he offers a quiz. It's 20 questions long, and he gives it out to the class, and he says, I I want you to fill it out. And if you can answer every single one of these questions correctly, I will give you a steak dinner. It's on me. And he, he's incredibly popular on the campus, and so he has large classes, so he would be out a lot of money if everyone were to get these questions right. But he said that over the course of his teaching career, he's been teaching probably 30 or so years now, he has only had a small handful count them on less than both hands, actually earn that steak dinner. And he says that these questions are questions about the Bible, that he feels like an average, average Christian who says that they believe in the Bible ought to know. Um, I'm not sure if he provides any trickeration on any of the questions or not, but he says that he has only had to pay up a small handful of times. And this is what he said. He said, you people, referring to the people in the church, say that you believe that this is the word of God. But I don't think you really believe it. Because if you did, you would know it. You would study it. You would experience it every single day. And when I heard that story, my my heart just sank. And after I got over trying to figure out whether I would have passed the test or not. Um, I thought to myself, you know, there are days that go by that I don't read my Bible. There are days that I do read my Bible and I just kind of skim over it. And I had to remind myself, this is the word of God. As we say in worship, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is a way that God has chosen to speak to each one of us. Wesley also talked about social holiness. 
And these are up on the screen, things like doing good works, visiting the sick, visiting prisoners, feeding the hungry, giving generously, seeking justice, ending oppression and discrimination, and addressing the needs of the poor. And these are all ways as we grow in our understanding of God's love, these are things that we ought to be spurred on to do. Uh, In our church in the month of August, you heard many people share about how they are partnering with things just like this. Just this morning, some people from our church were participating in a feeding ministry for a lot of homeless folks, feeding the hungry. These are things that as we grow in our love for God, as we remain in God, we start to have a desire to address the needs of others. It's not just that we exist for ourselves. We also exist to express love to others. And it's all these things that are ways that we are called to experience God's grace. And this morning, it would be really challenging for all of us to write down everything that was just up on those slides and immediately apply them to our lives. But this morning, I want to invite you to think through, what is something I can do to help me grow in my relationship with God? It might be reading the Bible. It might be spending more time in prayer. And what's one thing that I can do to grow in my social holiness, my love for others? For Jesus, it all pointed back to remaining in him experiencing the grace of God, remaining in Him. We're going to watch about a two-minute video, and this is the story of um, Derek Redman. I I would imagine that a large percentage of you have seen this video before. He was an Olympic sprinter from Great Britain. He had won a gold medal in a world championship, and even though he had fought injuries throughout his career, there was a chance that he might place in the medal round. Uh, And this was in the semifinals. And we're going to watch, see what happened.
Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. And I believe this morning that the race of life is tough. And I believe that the experience we have of salvation is the starting point of that race for us. And as we move through that race, we recognize that apart from Him, we can't do anything. And we pull up a lane, and we need our Father to come along beside us. Jesus said, remain in me, and I will remain in you. How is God calling you to remain in him today? What are the ways that God is just dying to express his love and grace to us if we would but listen?